0: Welcome back to another episode of Save It for the Blind. I'm Carson Odegaard here with uh, my co host Jeff Smith. And across the table, we got Brian Huber, works for CWA, one of our biologists. And next to him is Mike Cazaza of USGS. So thank you for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, what we're messing with on the table, if you guys can't, not watching this on YouTube and you're just listening to it on uh, wherever you find your podcast, we have a bunch of transmitters right now on the table that we're going to kind of dive into their purpose, how they started, and uh, what they're used for. So Mike, if you want to kind of go over your background, how you got started and how you're in the position that you are in now.
1: Well, um, sure. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys and, and talk a little bit about ducks and, and research and and uh, and share some of the things I've learned over my 30-plus year career, um, and which started uh, – I started out as, a, you know, I, I'm like typical – probably typical CWA employee too. You know, I like to hunt, fish. <laughs> As a kid growing up, I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, I decided I'd go to UC Davis and study uh, study wildlife biology, and so I started there when I was, you know, a freshman at Davis. And uh, pretty much the first day of school, I went and I had some work study uh, uh, credit that I, I was trying to find a job to pay for help pay for tuition which was uh, quite a bit less uh, expensive back then. <laughs> um, and, and so I went to my advisor, uh, Dr. Dennis Raveling, and uh, he suggested that uh, he had a PhD student studying avian cholera and geese, and I, d- I didn't know what any of that meant. And uh, so basically from that point forward, I was 18 years old, I started working on uh, uh, waterfowl-related research uh, as a work-study student. And it was conducted through, at then, it was the Fish and Wildlife Service. There was a field station in Dixon uh, associated, and they had a grad student associated with the field station and with, the, with uh, Dr. Aveling. And uh, it kind of just took off from there. I worked work-study for the full four years of my college undergraduate uh, career. And then uh, when I graduated, I started working full-time. And in the field station in Dixon, we were part of the Fish and Wildlife Service back then uh, and then converted into USGS a little bit later. We, uh, uh, we were specializing in waterfowl. It was a, a field station from Northern Prairie Research Center out in North Dakota, and we were a, a field station of that center, the science center in the service. And uh, so it was, it was sort of all ducks all the time back then. And uh, we started off tracking pintail with uh, one of these uh, similar transmitter to one on the table there, a VHF transmitter. And uh, we were doing a lot, just a lot of animal movement studies back then. Um, and and following these uh, these birds around to wh- where they went, and and using kind of this primitive technology back in the and I should say that was probably you know started in you know 85, 86. Is
0: that when the transmitters kind of first showed up for your guys' use in waterfowl, or uh, when did, when did that come about?
1: Yeah, that that was kind of in the in the late seventies. Okay. Our field station leader Dave Gilmer at the time uh, in, in Dixon, um, he he had done his PhD work back in uh, Minnesota doing some of the first. Air, he, he published the first papers using aerials learn like tracking birds from the air with airplanes and antennas and uh, and so yeah it's kind of started up in the late mid to late 70s um, and then we were you know starting to apply that technology out here in California do you guys always uh, use rocket netting or
2: how did rocket netting kind of Get into that. I mean, I know we use rock and netting to catch pintails now, but were you guys kind of the first people doing rock and netting in California? Or did uh Orthmeyer do some at Gray Lodge before that? or
1: Uh I mean, we the rock and netting is a t- is the technique to catch birds. I mean, we were you know, when I first started it, <laughs> basically the first <clears throat> time I went out in the field, the very first thing I was doing was rock and netting and I was working with Dennis Orthmeyer mm-hmm. and Joe Flescus and Mike Miller. Right. And uh you know, we went out and it was pretty, uh, you know, in today's terms, it would be like pretty cowboyish. You know, we were just out there, uh, had free range of catching birds and doing, you know, doing things, uh, maybe not following as many protocols as we should have been. <laughs> uh, certainly not now. And now, you know, there's a rocket net safety training manual that's 150 pages long. I think I wrote most of it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we started with that rocket netting technique. It's still the same. I don't know that it, I was out rocket netting Friday at... Uh, in the Delta trying to catch some cranes, and it's it's pretty much remained the same. You know, you put the nets out, you put some rockets, and uh, try and get those birds in front of that net and yep. and have it go bang. And uh, and then that gets you a lot of birds in hand at, at one time, which, yep. is, which is great.
2: Yeah, I always heard rumors that you guys set up a six-net shot at uh sheepy east up at klamath one time is that uh do you remember that one yeah i don't i wasn't there for that <laughs> but uh yeah
1: no, six we've man. done I the six net that. thing yeah. uh for sure i've done the most i ever did was five yeah um and uh you know we experimented with some remote detonated net controls basically we were using like airplane model airplane controls and and uh we had some issues with those where uh you know uh, Certain things would fly over a lightning storm or something, it would trigger our nets and and, and so causing uh, you know havoc. Once we finished setting a three net set on Delavan Refuge, and we started up the truck and the electronic ignition set off our thing, oh, and basically geez. we had three nets just shoot off right next to us. Uh, you know, luckily we were behind the nets. So <laughs> it was it wow. was we're we're at least smart enough back then, you know, to to keep ourselves safe. But uh, but yeah, it was a long night put, pulling all those nets back in and resetting. Um,
3: so. With all the work that you guys are doing, what is the end goal? What are you guys trying to find out with all the movement of all these birds that you guys are banding, with all the telemetry? Um. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, this the the early the early projects that we were working on. Uh, you know, we were using the technology that was VHF transmitters. So basically, we had to go out and track the birds um, with a truck, uh, triangulate most of the time with a truck, sometimes with an airplane, and you're lucky to get. You know, you put a transmitter on a bird, you'd maybe get 100 locations on that bird before the transmitter went, you know, over the course of the winter or the study period. And so our intentions were still the same as they are now. It's just now the technology's changed. We can do it a lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, So back then, I mean, we were getting, you know, much smaller amounts of data. The locations weren't that accurate. Uh, It took a lot of work to get, you know, I would spend all day to get five or 10 locations just driving all around the valley trying to find the find the birds um and, and we were looking at things like survival you know what was killing the birds you know how what, what was it? disease was it? predation hunting whatever what, what's affecting survival um habitat use you know what are the important habitats that these birds are using and and then again then following that up it's like how, how do we provide that so they have more of that and how do we maintain that and then um and then just their movements and the timing of movements, like so. When is it important? You know, when are they in the Klamath Basin? When are they down in the Sac Valley? When are, you know, when are they expanding out into the to the green forage? If you're a goose, right? When mm-hmm. are you when are you switching from rice to to, to green forage. So getting an understanding of timing and movement and um, you know, so it's kind of that movement, habitat use, survival. Those are the like, three big components of uh, you know animal movement studies and what kind of
3: information they can give you. Was it primarily tulis and, and pintail, or was there other species that you guys had the? That...
1: You know, er, early on, the species that we were really concerned on, pintail, of course, because yeah. of the population decline, so we really wanted to know, is a is wintering ground related? So when we were back doing that work in the 80s, no one knew, right? And now I think we've kind of settled on the fact that, you know, it's probably not wintering ground related, it's probably the... Pintails, it's breeding grounds, you know, and, and changing ag practices up there mm-hmm. in, in the Canadian prairies and the and U.S. prairies, too. Um, but it's really expanded from that. And then also white fronts back then, white fronts were, you know, there wasn't very many white fronts when I started, you know, it was, I think the population was, was about 100,000, 125,000 in California in, uh, you know, the, the late 80s. Um, and it's really, you know, obviously now it's expanded. There's more white fronts. You see more white fronts than anything else out there. So yeah. uh, it's a big change. And, I mean, I I won't try and take any credit for that, but I don't think, you know, we did contribute to, you know, uh, helping to understand the issues that we facing white fronts. And I think some management changes have really helped, helped those populations. Um, but now we've switched to. You know, we were really trying to get a lot more understanding of a lot more species. So we've, you know, we've marked almost, I think, 18 waterfowl species. um, Well, actually, uh, yeah, Uh, 18, I think, that we've got currently um, with transmitters that we're studying. And so we've expanded the range. And what we see is a lot of differences between the individual species. Yeah. And
0: In in your opinion, the data that you're getting from these transmitters, how, at least in, in my perspective, that, you guys are learning so much science so quick as compared to previous about, you know, movements and breeding, whatever it is, habits that they had that you guys didn't know. How is this science helping us for the future? And and
1: what's what are these crazy things that we're seeing that we didn't know were happening? Yeah, the, it's the... I mean that's kind of a loaded question in some sense. Is that there's there that's what we're really struggling with in some sense right now. Is there's so much data that comes in from these new transmitters? Um, where, <clears throat> excuse me, we were we were, uh, we were you know, getting about a hundred locations I mentioned per transmitter before. Yeah. And now you know now we have, um, you know, uh, over hundred fifty thousand locations for some of the birds that have you know gotten the most data for one transmitter for one bird wow <laughs> wow and the and the accuracy of those locations is is so much greater too it's like it's gps quality you know so plus or minus 5 meters and and prior to that those 100 locations that we would get were you know plus or minus 3 or 4 we put them in the right field pretty much but that was about it mm-hmm. and so now you can actually watch birds just like going through a field and where they're picking up food where they're where they're resting where well and certainly where they're nesting um, and and then you can, you can watch them leave their nest with their brood. If they're a goose, you can watch them, or a, a duck, for that matter, as well. And so you, there's just so much uh, greater level of detail of the life history of these birds that we can monitor with these new transmitters. And once we put the transmitter on, the data is essentially coming to us through the cell phone network for these transmitters that we're, we're utilizing. And so it allows us to have this data in, like, real time and to actually you know try and start to address real-time questions yeah right? like so we can match it up with remote sensed information on habitat like what's flooded what's not um you know we we watched on a on a shorebird that we had marked we watched the shorebird respond within three days to you know that hurricane that came through last year and you know flooded an area that hadn't been flooded in 20 years and there was a one of our radio, uh, Mark Shorebirds, was there in three days, you <laughs> wow. know, responding to something like that. And so these these kind of um, – what we're really trying to do is is harness that – this uh, tremendous amount of data and bring it – make it more relevant for management, for, um, for land managers, for, uh, you know, for bigger research questions, make it available um, so that we can get more out of it because we never – we never really had to deal with these big data things in the past, but mm-hmm. now we do. And, and so that's one of the biggest challenges where Our my team is working on right now is figuring out ways to you know integrate this big data into daily management of, a, say, a refuge or a duck club yeah. or whatever.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think Eli behind us pulled up a, a map, and if you're watching our YouTube channel, you'll be able to see this. So what are we looking at here on this map? Break it down for us.
1: Yeah, so this is um, – really it's just a sort of a summary of the radio marked uh, birds that we've marked over the past uh, since 2015 and and that includes about um, I think we have 18 uh, 1800 waterfowl that were marked uh, about 1300 ducks and, and about 500 geese and so you're looking at the points from those individually marked birds over the course of the last eight years or so and and you can see the you know there's uh, and this we, we're our work is primarily focused in the Pacific Flyway. So, yeah. you know, it's, all, it's, it's not that there aren't birds in the rest of the North America, but, but this is the, just the birds that we've marked out of our team out of, out of Dixon. Um, and so what you see is like this, uh, you know, really concentrated use in the Central Valley, right? So the Central Valley provides so much wintering habitat for so many birds. And then you see uh, uh, and many of those birds are going to disperse all the way from Wrangell Island, Russia, um, to the to the very north up there, uh, to Banks Island in the Canadian Arctic, uh, the North Slope of Alaska is very important for some of the nesting geese and some of the ducks uh, as well. Some pintails up there, um, and then you see you know a whole a whole slew of different migratory patterns. And if you know this is a summary slide, so it's not you know specific to uh, each species. We kind of just yeah. break it out a little bit, but. You know there's a lot of different migration strategies going on there there's what's, a lot of, what's
0: some of the ones that went easterly underneath the great lakes what's that about
1: yeah so um we've had both ducks and geese that have switched flyways after we marked them hmm. right? right so we had a pintail that we marked and and uh in the sac valley in the winter time and then you know it went up north to the breeding grounds and then the next year decided to go winter in in uh, louisiana right and that's wild so that's you could um you know if you look farther south on that map you'd see a track all the way down to the, the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. Um, and then uh, it's kind of a little bit hard to see, but there's uh, some some points in yellow down there. I think the geese are probably the blue points. Um, so we've we've had a couple pintail that have switched flyways, hmm. and then the geese as well. So some of the um, the geese have, have switched from wintering in the Pacific to wintering in the Midwest, mm. the mid-continent. Um,
2: was that... Do you remember if that was a male or female? Because uh, I know generally... Uh, females generally stay to stay in the same flyway, right? Yeah, I was then, a female. actually. It was a female that yeah. actually made that move. Yeah, oh, we have wow. another
1: female that just did it this year. Wow. She's oh, down yeah. there, uh, and 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 the really, you know, the really cool thing for some of these birds that are really, you know, you see these migratory shifts. They're kind of they're the exception rather than the rule, yeah. right? They're switching flyways, but they do do it. It's not that uncommon because mm-hmm. you know. Really, we're not marking that many in the grand yeah. scheme of things. We're marking a few hundred pintail out of a million. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, when you see those shifts, are, you know, they're pretty. They're, they're occurring fairly regular, regularly. Um, and and yeah, the the it's it's neat to see how they'll stair step down, and you can. You, I mean, for all the birds, you can see which habitats are important as they make their you know migratory journeys, and like that one that went to Louisiana, really just stair step from from wildlife area to wildlife area to wildlife area, you know, <laughs> in different states, some state, some federal. Uh, and it really just shows, it demonstrates the importance of conservation on yeah. the landscape, right? Out of these important areas that we're all trying to, you know, make sure, that, you know, have the resources they need to be maintained, um, you know, allowing those birds to make those different, different migratory movements um, across a really vast landscape. Um,
0: yeah. I know Brian had mentioned this. We talked about this kind of before the podcast started, but, the geese going across the Pacific, did we know about that before the transmitters were, were around?
1: You know, I think um, it was speculated on them. I mean, we knew we had some birds probably like going up to, to Russia or making these, making, it was from, from banding data. Mm-hmm. You know, we had gotten some, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then the early transmitters, like some of the early stuff that uh, John Takakawa pioneered with, uh, well, he was at at our office in USGS and then, uh, currently works down in Sassoon Marsh. Um, but John pioneered some stuff with satellite tracking and not as accurate. It was pre-GPS, but, and he, he marked birds that, you know, went up to Wrangell and documented that oversea over ocean migration really well. And
2: there's been reports of um, boats out, out in the ocean that have seen big groups of white fronts, right? I mean, like before we had this data, wasn't yeah, there a lot of like yeah, an, so anecdotal uh, yeah. reports of seeing seen on geese, you know, out in the middle of the ocean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. they've
1: yeah, they've been – I mean, it's known, but this is really, like, really – high. you know, we, we're actually just, we're just publishing a paper looking at, you know, certain migration path and how – the pathways and then how high they fly over oh, the yeah, water yeah. so that – because there's going to be some offshore wind development, you know, that's going to go on. And so we're trying to look for ways to minimize any impacts to migrating birds from these offshore, you know, green energy development Uh and so having that information, the GPS, these transmitters actually give us the elevation that they're flying over the water um, so we can know. Like, So for Brant, they're down there right in the – we have some Brant marked right now. They're right down there in that rotor zone, uh, whereas the white fronts are p- flying pretty high and you know, probably most of the time out of the rotor zone. For What's a, considered the rotor zone? Uh, you know, like f- up to maybe like – I can't remember what it, it is, but, you know, probably no, you know, 500 meters would okay. be the highest, but mm-hmm. it's probably yeah. not even that high. Yeah, gotcha. um,
2: yeah, and that, we were talking earlier, but kind of that migration route is usually when they come down in the early fall across the ocean, right? Yeah, so
0: they're not going north across the ocean, no, they're most coming of those, south most of those ocean. over the ocean
2: are coming down, and that, <clears throat> we've had it documented only, you know, a couple days, three days. We had a white front that came down in just three days, made that big trek. And then their migration north in the spring is completely different, right? They follow the prairies up and. Yeah, uh, for the for geese, geese. I mean, yeah.
1: well, and for most of yeah. the, the ducks, too. Some of the pintail do coastal migration, like we've had, you know, uh, certainly we've had a few pintail go to Russia, um, and, and they're definitely flying over the ocean at, at some point to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes from, from straight from Alaska. They'll get to Alaska and then go over the ocean, obviously, yeah. to get to Russia. But. But yeah, the, it tends to be like, and I don't think, you know, John's, John's work early on, I think we did see some northern migrations early on, you know, back in the 90s, where they were flying over the ocean north. And what we've seen is kind of a switch. I mean, none of our geese seem to do that anymore. Um, and it's going to be nice. We're going to hopefully make, do some comparisons. But the, the route, the typical route we see for both snows and white fronts is that they head, you know, north up towards Klamath uh, in, the, in the spring, you know, in the next month or two. They're going to head up into the Klamath region, and then they're going to head over to towards like Idaho, Boise, and then and then they make the jump up to the Canadian Prairies. They hang out there for a little while, and then they'll then they'll make the move from the Canadian Prairies up, and you can see that track, that blue mm-hmm, track, yeah. um, and and you know basically that's a pretty much a nonstop flight from the Prairies up to to the North Slope or to. The, to, you know, somewhere up in, into the tundra region, not, you know, they're not really stopping in the forested regions between.
3: Yeah. Um, uh, like with the, with the basin being dry, are you still seeing the birds going up to the basin, hanging out and then just leaving or flying there or going completely around, going more like big Valley, Susanville, and then up through Boise that way?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Klamath is, is really, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough, uh, obviously, area for conservation right now with, yeah. the way, with the water use decisions that are going on up there. So what we're sort of seeing, in, you know, in the fall, Klamath has been fairly dry the last few years, like almost completely dry. And so in the fall, we sort of see, uh, other than, the, you know, the tule geese stopping at Summer Lake, most of the birds in the fall have been flying over and just coming down straight. But to they California.
2: do still kind of check it out. I they mean s- that funnels them and they fly over it. Still, they do right? they yeah, do come near.
1: It's probably, you know, it's it's starting to get a little bit less, you know. Yeah. I mean they're starting to, you know, maybe a little bit slightly higher proportion that don't do that anymore. But but they still, you know, there's the climate basin still acts as this big funnel into the California Central Valley. And the birds are still moving through there. And then in the spring though, I mean, water conditions maybe not that great in at, at the you know within the refuge or you know uh, those areas, the traditional areas of Tule Lake and Lower Klamath Refuge, but there's still in the springtime more you know water on the landscape up there because of the rain and the snowmelt and everything. It's still going on. The Chewaucan Marsh is an important region. You, see, you do still see a lot of pintail use, a lot of goose use, all the way up to Malheur. You know that kind of that mm-hmm. that whole so- southern Oregon region. Um, and and you see that use is still going on more so in the springtime than in, in the fall where it's mostly dry.
3: Gotcha. Um,
1: but yeah, and then uh, one interesting note, like for just on the on the tule geese, we we published a paper. Uh, uh, Corey Overton in our shop published a paper that you were led a paper that was looking at uh, migrating tule geese and how uh, uh, what we noticed with these radio marked birds that we had is they came down from their uh, breeding grounds in Alaska. They ran into, in 2021, a, you know, massive smoke from wildfires yeah. in, the, in the West. And we saw these birds just doing some really wild things, uh, you know, in response to that s- smoke, which was, you know, the smoke basically extended from, you know, low, eleva- low altitude all the way up into, you know, 20,000 feet. And so the birds really had no way through it. And so we saw several of them just sat down on the ocean for up to two weeks. Oh, wow. Off the coast of Oregon and Washington. Didn't some of them turn inland, too? And Yeah, we had one. Them that exactly, yeah. Brian. One, one yeah. of the birds, uh, you know, I think it was the first tule goose that we've had recorded in in Idaho. Right. Yeah. It went and sat down in some, you know, wetlands in Idaho. Thank goodness those were there. And, and then uh, they all eventually made it to Summer Lake and into California. So, um, and we didn't have a, you know, it wasn't a huge sample of marked birds at the time. It was, you know, half a dozen or so. But we had we could compare what they had done in previous years to what they did when they faced that smoke. And it was significant. It was, you know, they probably were extremely stressed and I'm sure there are several birds that probably didn't, you know, a lot of birds that didn't make it. Uh, ours, ours were able to the radio marked ones. Anyway. Hmm. So it's what cool. is
0: this map that we're looking at here? It looks like we're just focusing on the Klamath basin, um, and birds that have been marked there. Previously. Yeah,
1: so, um, you know, just be, you know, because of the conservation concerns in Klamath, we really wanted to look at, you know, what's the what's the impact of Klamath? And, and so this is like a, maybe a little bit more detailed look of some of the use of Klamath. And you see Summer Lake there. That's probably a lot of Tule Goose locations. There's other species that are obviously using it as well. Um, and then uh, you've got uh, uh, the Goose Lake, which, uh, which Goose Lake is really sort of seeing a transformation. More waterfowl using it uh, now. And that's really what we're seeing is like sort of, you know, a lot of these saline lakes in the west, uh, a drying trend of the, mm-hmm. these, these uh, you know, these saline lakes and Goose Lake. Goose Lake's not saline, but it is a it's a terminal lake where there's no water coming out of it. So it's it's, you know, that's limited what, what comes in. That's it. And um, we've seen uh, and, and Patrick Donnelly documented this with some of his tools for mapping water on the landscape is that the water at Goose Lake, which is um, right there on the, on the right of the screen, the, it's transitioned from more of an open water lake to more emergent because it's getting shallower. So you're seeing a lot more plant growth, and it's, it's drying, and it's becoming almost a seasonal wetland which, you know, ducks and geese tend to like the seasonal wetlands Mm -hmm. more. So it's actually becoming more valuable right now. kind of like turning into its own marsh in a sense. Yeah, in a sense, it's turning into this seasonal wetland. But the problem is if it continues on that, you know, trajectory and we have a warming climate and we see a lot more water loss due to, um, you know, just evaporative loss because of the warming climate, we'll see it transition to even drier than a semi, you know, to a seasonal wetland. So... Uh, while it's good for, and we're seeing a lot more use than we ever saw in the past, at Goose Lake. I, yeah, I was I'm, surprised.
2: Uh, some of the mallards we marked after post postseason last year, a couple of them spent quite a bit of time at, up there. Goose Lake. Goose Lake. Yeah, yeah it it's like neat.
1: a, it was a, you know, kind of a pleasant surprise. Yeah. But uh, you just worry that that trajectory. You know, at least yeah. hopefully we can maintain it at least as a seasonal marsh, uh, as opposed to going dry, which is some of the other terminal lakes that we're seeing in the, you know, in the in the West go right. dry. Yep. Or on that trajectory to go dry. Um, yeah, so, I mean, so in general, that's like a little bit more specific look at some of the bird use within the basin. And and if, um, the previous uh, slide to that, I think the one just before that where, uh, where's just the overall bigger picture was just to, um, uh, yeah, that one, uh, that basically just really, um, and to get on this map, to be documented on this map, you had to go through and stop, spend, a, a, you know, a, at least a few locations within the Klamath Basin, right? So, you know, it just kind of goes, this is a, a good way of illustrating the importance of the Klamath Basin to waterfowl is, yeah. is you know, uh, it has a big influence. And it touches, you know, the birds that go through Klamath touch down in, you know, from Russia to ca- Canadian Arctic all the way down to Mexico and beyond, and then you know, if they switch flyways all the way to Louisiana, you know, so, so the the impact of something happening in Klamath or some of these major stopover areas and and, and uh, kind of refueling sites for waterfowl can be pretty widespread. And it, without the use of these transmitters and studying the animal movement, you know, it's it's hard to really understand that impact and and to get a perspective on it. Why we should care, right? Yeah, oh, that's phenomenal.
0: So let's break down kind of. The history of this. Yeah, stuff, let's huh? let's do the history <laughs> and let's talk about what they are, how you put them on. Um, obviously, like I said, some people are going to be able to see if you are watching on YouTube, you'll see kind of the history of the transmitters. But break it down for us what what these are used for, um, how they came about, and and how do you what, get them, how do you get them on the birds? Well, how we get them on, and
2: then um, what data each one because I the data kind of evolves as we get more technology. I mean,
1: like so this is like an early. VHS transmitter, right? VHF, yeah, very high VHF, frequency, right? Yeah. So it, so to track that, you got to have like an antenna. You can sort of see like the old, if you've seen people, out, you know, with, hold an antenna or right, right, whatever yeah. tracking by hand. You triangulate, right? So you, you go to one spot and you get a bearing on that transmitter and you hear, okay, this is where it sounds the loudest. You write down that, that compass bearing. Then you go to another spot, you write that down, you go to two or three spots, you put those lines together and you say, oh, they cross more or less here. And that's the location for the bird.
2: And these have a small internal battery that you'd be happy with. What one year of data? From? Yeah, something like that's
1: probably like six months. Six you'd be months lucky to yeah. get a winner out of that. Yeah. and and, uh, and then
2: the bigger ones like this one
1: off at Tule Goose, but the same technology, same technology. But yeah, and it's VHF, probably about a year off yeah, the bigger one there. Exactly. So. Yeah, battery you're limited by battery. The batteries are heavy and then so the transmitters tend to be, you know, heavier. Those are early on and then, then some internal ones, right?
2: That yeah. actually required surgery inside the duck. So, yeah, it, so that was genius.
1: Yep. An implant that uh, went in a pintail. Uh, the antenna actually came out of the, you know, made a small incision and it came out of the bird. Yeah. But the, the transmitter itself was carried in the, you know, intrasolomically and in the and and, and uh You know, you're limited because the batteries are. You know, they're only going to give you so many. You know, so much time and so many beeps to track. Do you remember
2: the cost of these? I mean, they were fairly cost efficient, right? I mean, compared to the new ones now,
1: relatively. You know, relatively inexpensive. Those were probably. You know. Relatively inexpensive for the unit. Right. If you go by the per-location cost... Oh, expensive, yeah. <laughs> you know, those are getting 100 locations if you're lucky. And, and and you're paying
2: somebody to drive around in a truck to get those locations. All yeah. day yeah. And yeah, so,
1: yeah. you know, we had field crews back in the day of 15, 20 people out with these trucks with these crazy antennas driving yeah. all over California right. or the west. And now, you know, when we put these newer transmitters on, as we transition transitioned to these, this was a transmitter that was 2015 uh made by a company in in europe uh ecotone um and basically they're they're you know, solar powered they're they look fairly large in size but they're you can see is that's, that's only nothing, that's yeah. like 15 grams right there yeah, yeah. it's about um, the size
0: it's about the well this one is about the length of my thumb and it has a little solar panel on top toe so. and that so. also
2: has a panel on the bottom that turns it off so when you put it on the bird
0: this bottom panel's off there you go. But you said yeah. they, they come smaller, right, for, oh, yeah. for teal
1: and Yeah, such? so it's so really been an evolution, right, from these VHF, you got to track them by hand, you know, a few locations, to these now. Uh, well, there was satellite in between these too, right? And yes, those were extremely absolutely. expensive. And, and the satellite transmitters, and they're still using those today, yeah. the transmitters that transmit the location through the satellite network, through Argo system, um, those – Tend to be about forty five hundred dollars yeah. a piece. The locations now you can get GPS quality locations, but you just don't get as many um, because they're you know it takes a lot of power to get uh, right. up to the satellites. Yep. Um, and then the transmitters that I've really focused on with my research is really the cell phone network transmitters that allow you to communicate. Like we can, I can set these on a daily basis as long as they're in cell range. I can change the settings and do all kinds of things. And rather than just be a you know, something that beeps and gives me some kind of direction. Now we get the GPS location through the cell phone network. This is like strapping an Apple watch to a bird, mm-hmm. right? You get, you get it in for, there's all kinds of other, sem, right? yeah, accelerometry yeah. data. So we know, you know, we can tell, is that bird walking? Is it flying? Is it feeding? Uh, we can, you know, is it just sitting there, you know, resting, roosting? Uh, so we can get the accelerometry data. It has temperature, altitude, all, and these are just standard. And there's other things that you can get some of, you know, and those are kind of, you know, even evolving as we speak. And the one that you're holding there, Brian, that's a, you know, a typical one that we'll put on a mallard, you know, pretty big, good-sized bird. Yeah. Um, and, But they're all the way down now to three grams, which is, you know, about the size of a third of that solar panel. Yeah, very small. Right? So, and and they do the same thing. They just, they may, uh you know, not have the power to get you as many locations hour, but this you could turn this thing on for 24 hours and get a location every minute.
2: So the uh, correct term, the battery runs low. The correct mm-hmm. term for the new ones is a GPS GSM transmitter. Yeah, that's yeah. what yeah. So most people call them, g- right?
1: GPS quality locations, and it's the GSM is it's like the texting network, right? So it's, a, it's uh, like the global system mobile communications. Exactly. Yeah, right? Right, so, that's what they call the data moving through the cell phone tower. So the process is
2: you put this on a bird and then this transmit basically sends a text message right like a text message and then that goes to the data system and that's how we get the data from them. yeah it's invest?
1: it's it, that's pretty much it it we it sends the it'll send a location to the to the cell network the cell network sends it back to the manufacturer the tag manufacturer the tag manufacturer has a website where we can download the data but we also have an option to to send that data automatically seamlessly to movebank which is a data repository that's located in Germany at the Max Planck Institute. And so we send all of our data to the Max Planck Institute, have it stored there online where we can access it. So we can have six different transmitter types from different manufacturers, but they all send the data to MoveBank, and then we can just have a one-stop shop to download that data and make it available. And that's kind of, you know, that's one of the things we're trying to do with our – uh, you know, with our research teams to get that data available, we've kind of developed this program. It's called AIMS. It's an automated interactive monitoring system for wildlife where we download data from MoveBank and then serve it up uh, to, say, a wildlife refuge, like the Gray Lodge Refuge Manager or the you know, manager at Little Dry Creek or whatever. They can access the data. They have access to all the animal movement data that we have in real time, so they can you know, sort of see what the birds are doing, how they're using their refuge if there's anything that they could maybe do differently uh, to manage uh, in response to what the birds are doing.
3: What's your longest in terms of years on one of the solar transmitters on a bird?
1: Um, So I think uh, the longest is a female pintail that we marked in 2017, and it went to February of 2022. So wow. Five years of data? uh, Yeah, uh, 1,600 days in 3,700 locations. Wow! So for that for that yeah. one pintail. Um, and 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 that's you know an older transmitter. So we didn't. I think the new we're gonna we're gonna break that record. So really? We're probably gonna break it soon, you know, because the newer transmitters are getting even more you know more data and and they're more reliable. Um, we had a white front that went 1,900 days from October of 18 to December of 23. Wow. So that's just, it just, and that's over 150,000 locations on the white front. So the callers, they just have, we have multiple solar panels, and they're, they're larger, so you just, they, they're yeah. more uh, durable. And the geese tend to maybe live a little longer, too, so um, more opportunity for more data. Um, What's uh,
2: the cost on these now, roughly? So,
1: so the rough cost, I mean, you only get a bulk discount, which is nice yeah, right. you know, if, if you order more. But um, I think it's twenty
2: more than twenty, right? Yeah. Something <laughs> like we, that. We ordered
1: know. right at the bulk when we got ours. Yeah, they're are about you know, and it depends because most of them we're still buying. You know, they're coming through some American distributors, but most of them are coming from Europe. So the euro the euro dollar conversion, but twelve hundred dollars is probably a safe yeah safe okay. number yep. and per transmitter. But the location, I think we last time we figured the cost per location was around. Nine cents, yeah. right? So, as opposed to the cost per location was about a thousand dollars for the old, right. cameras. yeah. That's yeah I mean, it's it like, really like really you kind expensive. of
2: mentioned earlier, it's, it's almost a data overload with these because you have so many points, you almost have to ask a question and then use that data to answer that question, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's I mean,
1: the things that you can do, and, and, and what it's really, you know, kind of as I've seen this change over my the course of my career from when I started out tracking pintails and spending a lot of time, you know, to get one location and working really hard at the end of the season, we, you know, we'd have maybe 10,000 locations on a hundred individuals. And, you know, at the end of our season, now we're having thousands, you know, many, many more. Yeah. And what it's allowed us to do is like, rather than have to apply a whole bunch of really, you know, intense statistics and, you know, pretty, pretty, heavy-duty research uh, questions and answers and hypothesis testing and all that, with these new transmitters, some of it is just basic. It's like all the birds are going there. You can see them going there in real time. They're using these individ- these fields where it's very accurate. So the, you can quickly s- just summarize the data and have some information that's really usable for, you know, management. And uh, so I think that's where, you know, we're seeing is like this massive amount of data lets you – you don't need to do so many statistics. You can actually just look at it, look at the summarize the day. When I say look at, it, I mean you know summarize it and say you know, hey, ninety percent of these birds are in this unit. This is an important unit. You mm-hmm. don't have to do a statistical analysis to tell you, because before we had you know just two points in that unit, right, or whatever. Right but now you just you see it. It's overwhelming, and and uh, and so being able to, with that in mind, you, we have this information kind of in real time. It's kind of like, you know. It's the information age, right? We're all, every, we're, all the time, we're always getting more and more data and we're having to, you know, figure out how to integrate that into our lives. And for me, it's like, I want to figure out how to integrate this data and this information into the lives of managers so that they can put it to good use and they can evaluate. Is what we're doing on the landscape really working? are the birds responding is it doing good things right yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: absolutely have we put any of these on the Eurasian wigeon to figure out what they're doing yeah well, brian
2: brian uh, i convinced them to uh, brian, put, them, put them on a pair brian do, do was we well, figured <laughs> out
1: he, he's a master at catching these eurasian wigeons i don't know how he does it but he uh, i think he's, he baits them in with special corn I got or something the eye for them, eurasian yeah. corn uh, yeah <laughs> maybe maybe so maybe but uh, yeah, we did mark a, a couple, and um, both male and female. They were uh, they were when I say a couple, it was actually a pair. Yeah. And they traveled. Um, let's see, uh, together to Alberta, um, uh, along kind of that uh, main that cross Kind of the path. route you were talking. Yeah. They went
2: up to Klamath, and then they went over to um, Montana. I Didn't they spend quite a bit yeah, of time in, 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 in downtown Ma- Mazuma? What is Missoula? Missoula, yeah. They yeah. spent almost a month
1: in like downtown Missoula. There, yeah, yeah, hanging out yeah. in some wetlands right along the way. It was crazy, yeah, yeah. Yep. And then they, and then they made it up into the prairies. Yep. Um And then uh, let's see if I got my notes here, just because to keep track of the mail went to the YK Delta, um, and then spent time near Chivak uh, in uh, New Talk villages, and then I didn't hear that. Yeah. Came back coastally and was heard. Last time it was heard was. It had a low battery, so the transmitter was probably failing. And unfortunately, you know, well, you know, and we're probably we're reusing these transmitters, and I think we did reuse the ones oh, we yeah. put on the widget because yeah. we didn't have a, like a. Because I had to study. beg for them. To <laughs> put it on the, so, so, which, so, yeah. <laughs> so to all those hunters that you know turn the transmitters back in after you know harvesting a bird, and we, we'll try and send you out a dummy transmitter if you want to get your bird mounted. But to all those hunters, you know, you know, we try and reuse them. We try and get them back out there, get more data, so that you know we can. Get, get as much out of these as we can and that's what so some hunter turned that radio transmitter back in and it went out on a eurasian widgeon and yeah. and uh you know because of yeah. brian's diligence of bugging me um <laughs> and i think the layout the last time we heard of that one was was flying over vancouver island oh
2: that's cool i didn't hear yeah. last time i heard it just kind of went up in the yukon and then i didn't see any more yeah. data so no, that's it, cool it's, that it weighed it up to the yk delta and then and then came back down so he yeah, we so d- so never went over to the old world uh, no, nothing. <laughs> was, <laughs> yeah. So it's not the first documented uh, Eurasian. No, it, was, didn't. it stayed. It stayed North America. Good. There we go. Yeah. Good. So, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yep.
0: Are you seeing any mortality rates higher on these birds than you are in a, a general population sense?
1: Uh, I mean, I think, you know, you strap something onto a, a bird and there's going to be some impacts. you're like a
0: fishing lure for a hawk? They just see something shiny on the back of a duck? Just I, I,
1: I think there is something to that. Yeah. We've actually published, uh, you know, a couple of papers on sage grouse related with transmitters where we see certain types of transmitters potentially have like an even a higher mortality rate. Like, Interesting. Um, and I think, it, you know, we're starting to, we're trying to study it, right? But, you know, l- looking at like, solar panels, the reflectivity. And so we try and we're asking, you know, the manufacturers to make them as dull as they can still, you know, because we don't want to make those jewelry, you know, we don't want Mm -hmm. that bright jewelry so a hawk can see it. But, I, you know, I don't want to, I think there is an impact to survival. And so when we get a survival estimate based on these radio marked birds with a backpack harness or whatever, our survival estimate, we would say, you know, it's probably like the low end, lower end. It's usually if you're comparing it to what we see for banding estimates for most species, um, we're working on paper right now on that. It's it's on the lower end, but it's not that far away from what just the banded birds yeah. are having for it, survival. It's,
2: it's hard. It's hard to compare because with a banded bird, you don't know its natural mortality, right? I mean, you, you're only getting that if you recover the band, exactly. But with these, with the GSM transmitters, I mean, the second it dies, yeah, you we know, know mortality it's dead. every yeah, time. We know it's banded. dead right That's away. True. Yeah, yeah, so it's hard that. to. Uh, it is really hard to compare the impact yeah, based on. I mean, how do you how do you measure that? You know,
3: what about hunter harvest? What are you guys seeing in terms of hunters actually harvesting these birds opposed to more natural deaths?
1: I mean, you know, I would say um, in the winter time in California, you know, harvest is a big portion of the mortality that we see for the radio mark birds. I mean, that's just. You know, there's a lot of birds that get shot, and and but that they're man. You know, obviously waterfowl are managed. We're marking birds that are managed to be harvested. Mm-hmm. So, expectation is that you know a good proportion would be harvested, and we're seeing that. You know, we we have you know several birds of each mallard and pintail get shot. The geese tend not so much because we're marking you know thirty or forty geese out of, you know, a million that are flying around, yeah. and uh, I think we see a little bit less. You know, they they've got. A, a little bit of safety in numbers, right? So that we mm. we don't see a higher propor as higher proportion of those being shot. Um But I mean, overall, I think you know, I would say eighty percent of our birds usually make it through the winter. And and the other thing is too is like you know just because when we mark birds down here, we're marking them as they arrive, especially like pintail Mostly or wedge. Mostly pre preseason, right? Yep. So they have a little adjustment period. Opening day, you know, we usually take a pretty good hit. There's always a few birds, they're they're still, they're getting adjusted to the transmitter Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, maybe not quite behaving the way they, you would like to see them behave. Or, you know, a lot of times the first few weeks after marking, they're just spending more time preening and stuff. And I think they're a little more, you know, uh, they're more um, likely to get predated by a, you know, a, a hawk or something like that because they're messing with their transmitter trying to, you know, not paying attention to the skies above them. But in terms of like Habitat use and movements and things like that, we, we see for the most part, you know, they seem to be behaving very naturally. We see, you know, great, just, there's nothing really, we are not see any out of the ordinary movements mm-hmm. and, and things. So, um, you know, the transmitter effects are, they're probably there, but they probably don't affect most of the things that were really the information that we're gathering from from the animal movement itself. Yeah. Now,
2: I know from catching a lot of these birds that, you know, we'll catch birds and call you guys and you'll come put transmitters on, but um, generally we're selecting adult birds and we're selecting females for the most part, right? Because we're going to get that nesting data from the female. So generally, I mean, what's, what do you think the proportion is? Probably 75% females, 25% males that are marked or?
1: it's Yeah, we're definitely female heavy because yeah. we always want to get the most out of those transmitters, yeah. right? So we want to know, like, uh, you know, if for, for the ducks, for sure, we're, you know, trying to lean a little, lean a little heavier on the females just yeah. because we want to know where they nest, and, and, and uh, so that's where we've been putting our, our focus. The geese, on the other hand, though, we, I mean, uh, usually what we do with the geese is if we're catching, we don't want to catch them all out of the same group, so we kind of split up, you know, so if a rocket net goes off and we catch 40 geese, we'll either mark all the adult females or all the adult males, whichever one we have the most of because they both attend the nest. So we'll actually get nesting data from males just the same as we would from females. They're slightly different nest attendance rates, but, but what we're seeing is we can tell whether their nest is successful. But just looking at the data, we can tell, you know, did they take a brood? Did they go on a brood march? And did there, was their brood successful? Did they kind of by their movement patterns? And so we're, we're looking at that. So we can monitor, like, the snow geese and the white fronts that we mark here. We can look at them over the course of when they arrive the next year, uh, and download all their data back to the cell phone network. Because when they get out of the cell phone network, they store the data on the transmitter. they got to come back in cell phone range for us to get that data. But most of them do. And, uh, and we can, you know, basically get an idea. They, fl- they flew to Russia, and they had a successful nest, they had a successful brood, and then they came back down. And we can see that, right? And so we can monitor, you know, especially like with the Russian Wrangell Island population, no one's going to Russia right now. Uh, you know, we don't have any scientists <laughs> traveling to Russia <laughs> to, to, you know, see how things are going at Wrangle. So, so having these ways to remotely monitor the population is pretty, you
2: know. Yeah. Uh, amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah it's pretty helpful uh, and, and pretty insightful. So we can say, hey, it's a good year. We can expect, you know, a lot of, a lot of young snow geese on the wintering grounds or, you know, um, or not. So this,
2: this collective project, I mean, this has to be one of the biggest waterfowl movement ones in the country, right, if not in the world? Or how do you guys compare to other people doing these types of projects? Or,
1: Yeah, I think we're pretty lucky. We're pretty unique here. Um, you know, it sort of spawned out of uh, the, the 2015 start where we started to apply this technology, this GSM, GPS technology, um, stemmed from a big study that Department of Wa- California Department of Water Resources funded in Sassoon Marsh to help with monitoring of, of, of the wintering population down there. Um, and so, you know, we were able to um, get a, a really good start and, you know, mark several different species and apply this new technology and and it really base that out of Sassoon. And then it's expanded from there because folks started to see, well, this is really cool. We're getting such great information. We'd like it in our area or whatever. So, mm-hmm. so it's expanded to, like, the rice country, Sac Valley, you know, the – the the California Rice Commission and, and California Department of Water Resources there really uh, helped us expand to new species um, beyond just waterfowl too. And waterfowl, I guess we're uh, we're you know we're trying to mark some cranes right now. We've got uh, mark some ibis this summer. Yeah, we've got a bunch of transmitters on ibis so maybe, all across the west. Maybe some
2: coots too. Uh, oh please. Yeah, there's there's already <laughs> some coots out there with uh, transmitters. Uh,
1: I don't want to, you know, don't don't be targeting them. <laughs> no. uh, and
2: that's but, why we can't, uh, you know, br- you bring that up, but, you know, a lot of people are like, well, why can't we see the data? Yeah, I well, want we to see real-time be, data. Yeah, we have to be real careful on not showing real-time <laughs> data because we don't want these birds to get targeted. So that's a, a soft subject for hunters, but the reality is we just, we don't want to give out exact locations of these birds, you know? You get one bad
0: egg that finds out where all the the backpack birds are. And there goes all the data. Yeah. I mean, and it's,
2: I, uh, we were scouting for pintail last year and I was having a hard time finding pintail. So I got on the site and I found a pintail and in an area that we haven't been scouting. And I was like, I'm going to go drive over there. And sure enough, I drove to that field and I found the bird with the transmitter in that field. So, I mean, it is real time, uh, it's hard to do i I think I was really lucky for that to happen but yeah it's it's real time you can was there a bunch input. of birds with it there really wasn't a ton really? not enough to go set a net or anything
1: yeah. yeah but there you know there was birds around there but yeah, yeah
2: definitely uh it was pretty interesting so
1: yeah I, I think I mean just you know topical. yesterday i think I got a uh uh a biologist sent me a, a facebook post or whatever someone had you know, gotten some really nice pictures of a bird at Seco a pintail, a hen pintail with a transmitter on it, like mm-hmm. yesterday or the day before. So, I mean, the photographers can do it. It's just, you know, yeah. obviously we're not, you know, we don't want to have that real time data out there for people to, you know, to take advantage of that. Yeah. But we certainly want that real time data available for management and for managers to put it to good use. Um, Is
2: there any plan to have like, Kind of like your stuff here, I mean, is there anywhere where, like, the general hunter can go and kind of see some of these movements? Um, not necessarily in real time, but kind of like some of these summarized maps and stuff? Or is there any plan to do that
1: in the yeah, future? The, I mean, I, I, you know, keeping web pages up, you know, it takes a lot of funding. And, oh, and, yeah. and you know, the way the nature of our business, and in some sense of my business, is to work off of grants. Like I'm not fun, you know, government really doesn't fund me to do what I'm doing. It's, it's groups like CWA and ducks unlimited and, and, you know, other agencies that actually have more money to that. And that are interested in, 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 in understanding what's going on with these migratory birds. They're funding it. And it's usually, you know, two, three, four year studies. Right. And so they run out. So maintaining those websites and doing all that, that's very challenging, but we are, um, we actually have a, a website that should be up by the end of the week at our uh, uh, on on uh, our website uh, that talks about the Ames program, AIMS for Wildlife program. This you know taking this animal movement data and making it useful for managers, and we'll have maps and stuff up there. Yeah. Um, so we're we're getting there, and I think you know we have some proposals in to try and expand this you know to across North America and uh, working with some you know folks at you know all the different agencies and all the different acronyms to try and make it happen, um, to try and bring this animal movement data uh, to, you know, to make it just more valuable um, and bring it together. Because right now there's, you know, there's other guys like me, there's folks that are studying mallards in Tennessee or, you know, or pintails in North Dakota and all these studies are going on, but no one's synthesizing that data and bringing it together at the scale that we were able to do in the Pacific flyway. And so I think what well, we can, we, we're basically showing kind of a demonstration project. This is an exa- example of what can be done when you do bring this movement data, this rich data stream on animal movement together across species, you, you know, you can really do some really cool stuff yeah. right? and hopefully make an impact and, you know, uh, put, make better use of the conservation
3: dollars that you have going forward. You mentioned you work a lot on grant funding. How secure is your funding going forward to make sure the project's gonna keep going? (laughs) That's a that's
1: a good question. It's always a you know we're going by the skin of our teeth. You know it's uh, it's a challenge. We have some you know we've had some really good support from Department of Water Resources in the past. You know state budgets are looking tight, and Mm -hmm. so I'm you know I'm not overly optimistic at the moment, right? But I think you know the state of California, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, they're, they're a huge supporter and they're putting a lot of resources into it. Now I know they, you know, they, they're uh, excited by the work and, and their waterfowl team is really, uh, really a great, they've got a great staff over there. So, so hopefully, you know, we can build on that momentum even in tough budget times, but it's kind of a, you know, I'm always open to, you know, figuring out how to make things happen. The Klamath Basin is another area where we're trying to, you know, uh, hopefully get our data to be useful up there so that, they can folks can integrate it and maybe help to justify why we need actually wetlands and and uh, you know some of the benefits of those wetlands what what they provide for.
2: Yeah, so we wrote a grant uh, last year and Sitka funded twenty transmitters and so we we got twenty transmitters we put them on but that data still goes to Mike and his crew so okay. that they can use it so. Yeah, I've always thought through CWH we should do a GoFundMe, and you know, once we hit the money for twenty <laughs> transmitters, we go buy a bulk yeah. twenty and just keep that you know machine going. That'd be you know? good. But yeah, it's Social media, maybe some yeah, yeah just to keep
0: keep them going. Um, so one of the things we didn't touch on yet, and I know people might have questions that aren't familiar with these transmitters. How exactly do they go on a duck? Where where do they sit? How do they sit? How do they stay on
1: a duck? Yeah, that's a great question. So. um the transmitters have like little attachment points usually there's an attachment point in the front of the transmitter and then the back of the transmitter and then we'll use a, a, a harness material we use actually like a, it's a nylon that's got some um, stretch to it but it has no memory so it's like it's you know even a couple of years after we pulled them off ducks, you can put it, it, it you stretch it and it goes right back to where it was so it's really uh, you know very durable Brian's, yeah, Brian's uh, testing it out there um, and, you know that's an old transmitter, right? Yeah, it's that's still been for it's a still long time. That, that harness material yeah. is great. Yep. Um And so we essentially we're putting it on like usually the ducks get it's like a they have a neck loop, it goes over their head and just underneath their neck, trying not to put it too tight but not too loose. It's just sort of a you know the feel for how that fits on there. You don't want to interfere with their ability to feed or anything like that or fly. And then there's a, a loop that goes behind the wings and, and in front of the legs uh, un, across the belly. So it's two loops, front and back, and it's just basically like a – similar to a backpack almost. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we call them a, – it's a backpack. It's a Dwyer harness uh, is the technical term that we use. And then the geese get collars uh, for the most part, for the bigger geese. Um, we have been trying – Ross geese don't handle the collars very well, so we've been putting some backpacks on Ross geese, Okay. And those uh, and, uh, seem to be working pretty well. We just haven't done very many. And then we, we did just mark some Aleutian uh, Canada geese with uh, with backpacks as
3: well. They don't handle the collars very well either. Is it because um, they're too stressed out with the collar on? Why don't they handle uh, it very well?
1: You know, I think it's, it's really interesting. Having handled so many different species and even – uh, of duck and geese, they they all react differently to the transmitter and the pa- and the harness and how you attach it. Mm-hmm. So some just don't care; they're like bulletproof. <laughs> like, it's funny. We marked a bunch of avocets last year in the Saline Lakes region and, and some in California, and they're like bulletproof. I and mean, the avocets don't care; they're just like, oh, I'll will take this and fly to Salt Lake City <laughs> tomorrow, <laughs> you know, no problem. Um, whereas you know you mark a cinnamon teal and Jesus, they they uh, they just. They, they sort of seem like they don't want to fly. They yeah, don't they, want to move. They want to just roll over on their backs and put their feet up. And then if you give them 24 hours, uh, they get used to it and they figure it out. And then a lot of times they're just fine. <laughs> um, and so, and it's just sort of, you know, it is sort of species specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and so for the geese, you know, some, um, some of the geese just don't handle having that, that neck collar. I don't know. They just, they can't handle it and they, it distracts them too much and then something eats them and, um, and, and that's probably one of the bigger problems. Um, so we just try and, you know, keep track of all that and try and get the best package out there. And I think that's the one thing is like, it's not perfect, right? The studying animal movement, there is an impact to the birds. And we recognize that we try and minimize our handling time. We want to, you know, get these birds caught, released in a, as gentle and quickly as we can, get them out there. We want them to do well because we want the data, right? We don't want some yeah. you know, anchored down. We don't want to anchor these birds down. And, and we're trying, and the pa- radio packages seem to be getting better and better, lighter and lighter, less and less impact. And so the data, I think, as we keep going on this, we're just getting, it's, it's getting better and better, and which is really nice. And, um, you know, there is an impact, but, you know, for the most part, we're working on species that are harvested. Like that's a pretty good impact too. So, yeah, uh, you know, a, a few, very small number of birds get a transmitter, uh, and hopefully we get a, you know, tremendous amount of data, um, you know, a high return on our investment. So of using these uh, transmitters,
2: I know when you did your presentation at the Sassoon Marsh there, you had some really cool data on like the daytime, nighttime movements, and um, the, you know, the importance of sanctuaries.
1: Yeah. I mean, we we did one study down in Sassoon where we actually, um, because we can talk to the transmitter and tell it, okay, you know, we got all these transmitters that were fully charged at 100% and doing well. And so, two weeks before the season, we we uh, told them to get us a location every two minutes, mm-hmm. and so we could get really detailed movement location. Well, how are the what are these birds doing over a twenty four hour period? And we did that two weeks before the hunting season started. You know, in, it's the balance of the state zone in Sassoon, right? So, you know, it's probably like the first week of October or whatever. We looked in, how are these birds moving around the, the, the marsh? Then on opening night, the day before opening day, we twi- switched them back to the one minute, because normally we're getting 30-minute locations. So then, because um, that's about all they can really handle on a, you know, for, you know, c- consistently. But we can handle a 24-hour period at, at two minutes if, you, if you're at a good battery charge. So that's what we did. So then on opening day, we put them at two minutes again to see how they responded. And most of them, you know, you, you, could wa- you could literally just look at the locations and see, okay, guys are going out to their decoys. Because the birds are fe- out feeding at night. They're out in the duck <laughs> clubs, right? So you see, okay, and somebody drove a boat out on this club. And, uh, you know, these birds all got up and went back. And they, and they went to their roost spot, wherever they had roosted, you know, the day before or whatever. And sometimes that's on private ground or, you know, hunted zones. And we, we kind of got a feel for how long did it take them to find a sanctuary. And for most of them, it was just a few minutes. Wow. Right? Like, <laughs> they wild. found a place where they weren't getting shot at. Now, there was yeah. one pintail that was, she flew, like, literally, I think she flew 73 kilometers around. I mean, it's hard to do in Susun North, oh, yeah. right? Just around and around, <laughs> flying out. She flew over Grizzly Island. I mean, I, you could just sort of, you know, anthropomorphize this thing. <laughs> I'm watching the, her locations, and I'm like, she's a, she flew right over this blind on Grizzly Island Refuge, and... An adjacent duck club flew over and probably got, by the reaction, probably got shot at and ended up, you know, just out in Sassoon Bay floating out there. (laughs) And it was about like 10 in the morning or whatever. She floated around Sassoon Bay. Then she went back in, tried to find a spot on Grizzly. No, came back out and then eventually circled over. And I think by then... You know, pintail, are especially pintail, but they're all very, you know, waterfowl are very social. They can hear, you know, they can hear the calls from miles away. They get up and they start flying. They get up a little high and they can they can see where the birds are, are going in. Yeah. And she found Joyce by, I think by one o'clock in the afternoon, she found Joyce Island and uh, settled in there, right? Wow. So, but for the most part, what we saw was, you know, the birds adjusted very rapidly. And then by the second week of the season, we did it again just to see what, what had settled in. And... They were back to, you know, very uh, distinct movements between feeding and roosting sites. And most almost all their roosting sites were either sanctuary, you know, areas that, on private land that weren't hunted or within sanctuaries on the refuges in Sassoon. So uh, they, they adapt very quickly, mm-hmm. right? And so we saw that. That's really nice. And, you know, in general, you know, ducks, if for the – listener, you know, they tend to feed at night primarily. Like, I mean, they feed all day long, 24 hours a day they can't feed. But – you know, if you're looking at what activity they're doing most in, at what time of day, most of the time at night they're, you know, they're spending a good portion of their evening feeding, their night feeding. And then in the daytime, they're mostly roosting or preening or, you know, socializing. Um, and so we can, you know, so we really focus on those nighttime locations to look at, well, what are really good feeding habitats for these birds, right? So the for ducks are really, really great. And then the geese, geese tend to feed it during the daytime. So we can analyze that data separately, right? So we're getting a feel for where they're eating, where they're where they're roosting, and and the juxtaposition. And so the other thing that I think Brian may have been alluding to is like, how far do they fly from their from their roost by to go, species too? By species he had to go. Th- go
2: some that are stay really close, and some that go farther. And you could tease that out. Right? Yeah, from absolutely. The, from the satellite stuff, it was and interesting.
1: The one thing we really see is that none of them go that far. So if you know, for those that think you know, oh sanctuary, you know. The, concentrates these birds and keeps them away from, you know, our opportunity to, you know, for recreation, it, I would say, I would argue, no, I want more sanctuary near where I'm at because. More birds in your area. Yeah, no. because, yeah. you know, they're not going to go pretty much, they don't go farther than 10 kilometers, which is, you know, six miles. That's as far mm-hmm. as they're going to go from where they're roosting to where they're feeding. And then they're going to go back to probably where they're roosting most of the time. And oh. so if you're not within six miles or 10 kilometers or so of a, of a sanctuary, you know, you're going to have limited opportunity to see birds going back and forth between roosting and feeding sites, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. having sanctuary spread out on the landscape is, you know, one way to increase potential recreational opportunities, just bird watch to hunt, whatever, right? Yeah. So, so those sanctuaries are really important. And if there are no sanctuaries, there's probably not going to be, the birds will go find a place where there is a sanctuary. They don't, right. they don't stay where there isn't one. Yeah. Okay. Pressure.
2: what about the um species like which ones stay
1: closest and which ones move the farther farthest away yeah, so the, you know pintails obviously you know that's like our you know a flagship species but they they move the most right. right and wigeon are probably you know not too far behind and um so there you go out the six miles right roughly Is that- yeah and they move around more too they move they'll switch roost sites way more often mm-hmm. right like they'll roost you know one day at calusa maybe you know they'll stay there for a while the next day there might be a gray lodge right but then usually once they settle in but they'll move their roost you know around to the different basins and everything and they'll use the whole valley you know um much more than the other species like and and i think uh you know wigeon green wings they and green wings were sort of just starting to get some really cool data because the transmitters we just got a six gram transmitter this year to to mark green wings in, in a little more number so that's really so we're getting some cool data on green wings this year um and they're, you know, they move around, you know, fairly well, not quite as much as the Wigeon and the Pintail. And then um, the Mallards and the Gadwall tend to be pretty darn sedentary. You know, they yeah. they set up, you know, last year we had a, you know, quite a study with, uh, with the lack of rice on the west side, right? Mm-hmm. Calusa, Delavan, Sacramento Refuge. There's really no rice around those refuges. And we marked Mallards and Pintail out there to see how they responded to having no rice, right? So we marked them on the west side. And... The Pintail, after, you know, they wanted to be there. They loved those west side <laughs> refuges, right? But by December, they were all in the Butte Basin. They yeah. were all out of there. None, I mean, almost none of them were left for just a few locations in December. Um, whereas the Mallards, you know, they were still hanging. They they didn't really leave. They they hung out. They, they toughed it out. They switched more to probably using... Uh, and we, this is still preliminary stuff, but they would probably used the marsh a little more than they would have rice a little less because there was none. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the few rice fields that we had over there, and some of them were incentivized, like Cal Fish and Wildlife had an incentive program to flood rice, and, yeah. the, and the rice growers did. A few of those incentivized rice program uh, fields over there that were flooded were just I mean, you can, if you put my points up on the screen, you know, I don't have it with me, but if you put the points over the map, you can't see the field (laughs) because there were so many mallards and pintail and, Mm. you know, using these little, these little postage stamps on the west side of of flooded rice. Uh, But it was, you could see how important that flooded rice is to birds.
2: So I think with all this information, I think every hunter in California wants to know where the birds are this year yeah yeah i'm not you're the one guy who actually knows <laughs> yeah, where we are I, I, I
1: know where they are I, I know they're nowhere near my blind uh, uh it's been a rough year but uh but yeah i think um you know that th- we saw a big difference this year between this year and last year weather wise and also rice wise we yeah. have a lot more flooded rice out there the birds are spread out yeah um, right. It's not, you know, there's always a lot of speculation. Did they all go to Mexico or did they all, no, they, I can just tell you, no. Yeah. The birds, they, you know, they stay here, you know, most they're all most of the birds are staying in the valley. I think we got a kind of a, a lot of um, maybe late, we had a late arrivers mm-hmm. um, coming in. But, you know, most of the birds that we have marked, we're marking here in the fall. So it's tough for us to really evaluate that. But I would say some of the birds that we that we did have coming back came back late. Right, so they were, you know, there's nothing pushing them down. The weather is fairly mild, it right? It's been fairly mild. We had a bunch of birds that we marked in Klamath this summer, and those birds stayed in Klamath. Um, and the little bit of wetlands that were up there, like the sump, is just barely flooded. Yeah, but we had like. 15 of our hen mallards just sticking up there in this little... And little then hatch. it, it froze right? and they all pushed down. Yeah, almost all they, pushed yeah, down. There's, there's, there's still
2: three that never... Yeah, yeah three <laughs> that <laughs> tussed it out, but yeah, yeah, all the rest came down. So yeah. it's amazing just seeing that cold snap and the effect it had on those birds up there.
3: Yeah. I think that's where hunters get frustrated is birds do feed at night, and sometimes there might be a ton of birds around, but you'll never see them because they're... Right. They're in coming the sanctuaries. Out, yeah, and then yeah. they're coming back in before you ever get to your blind. They're back in their sanctuary for the day, wherever that may be, public area, private, yeah. et cetera.
2: And when you have a mild winter like this, the birds aren't forced. You know, when it's cold exactly. and nasty weather, it forces them to have to go yeah. feed out during the daytime and stuff. So when you have these mild mild winters, they they can sit there all day yeah. in the sanctuary and be fine and go feed at night and get enough of their intake that they need.
1: Yeah, I think that's – Brian's hitting a, a big point. And it, yep. it really – you know, I don't know – it's not rocket science. It's not news to anybody. <laughs> the weather, I mean, I've been yeah. sh- hunting in short sleeves, you know, the last couple of years. I mean, yesterday I was just about got destroyed by mosquitoes. Yeah, uh, Right. I mean, it's, it, the weather's milder. The birds are not moving around that much. There's not a lot to push them around. And I think we haven't done this analysis yet with the data. But we can, and we will look at it, is, you know, birds are very susceptible to, say, hunting pressure when – when they are moving, and, and there's something causing them to move, and they move to a new area, like we see, like oh, a bird came from the San Joaquin and came up to the Sac Valley. Well, those are the ones that get tend to get shot. Our transmitter birds, they get shot in the first couple of days of being in a new area. Mm-hmm. And I haven't like that's at this point I would say that's still anecdotal. We haven't published that in a paper yet. But I, I mean, I just see that over and over again. They move to a new area, they get harvested. And yeah. so if there's nothing causing them to move. You know, then you know the opportunity to be harvested is lower. Yeah, and absolutely. it's interesting.
0: Yeah. Never, never put that together. You know, and if you see it on a transmitter, it makes sense for all the rest of the birds. They show up to a new area. You harvest them if they've been there for a long time. They know the safe spots. You're not you harvesting. Can, you <laughs> need to
3: think about it. When guys talk about, oh, we need some new birds, because when there are some new birds in the area, they react to a call differently. You're like, wow, I haven't seen a ten pack of whatever, name it, wigeon, you know, in a month. And here they can all come right into the blind yeah. where every other duck is like, see ya. Yeah. Yeah. Straight line, I'm going to go yeah. sit down, you know. And
1: that, these transmitters and getting this animal movement data really uh, is going to allow us, and it's allowing us to look at the impacts of things like weather, right? And like uh, we're writing a paper right now on the impacts, of the change in fog in California and how oh, that's yeah. impacted bird movements. And, and I don't want to give my – my headline's away, but I, I would just <laughs> say that, you know, we, we see a significantly, you know, that birds, fog caused the birds to fly more, Um, you know, and when they got up above the f- fog, they would just fly around and around and around. They'd be disoriented, you know, and we would see in the olden days when I was, you know, uh, at Davis, for instance, you know, you'd be scared to drive across the causeway because it was so foggy, you get, you know, there's all these big pileups. You just don't see that anymore. It's, no. You know, it, it happens occasionally, but... The research on the fog is really interesting. There's a po- paper out of Berkeley that showed that um, uh, you know the fog is really uh, affected by pollution, air pollution, and the Clean Air Act and the the work that the California Air Quality Board or whatever. I mean, it may bother in you in the lack of rice burning. Just you know, cleaner air yeah. actually. Le- le- lends itself to less opportunity for fog to form Mm -hmm. because there's not the particulate matter in the air. Mm -hmm. And so the way I kind of look at it, and this is what I'm writing in my paper, nobody, please don't scoop me on this, (laughs) is that these birds are, you know, they're flying less. And so you actually, you know, you've, we're trying to, we we manage for these birds by trying to put calories out there on the landscape in the wintertime. Right. And the amount of calories that we need to put out there. Uh, and that's like the joint venture planning, the joint, you know, these plans are based on calories that we can put on a landscape, whether it's wetland seeds through, you know, uh, marsh management production or rice seeds, you know, they, it produces calories and those calories, the number of calories is is less because the birds don't fly as much and they don't fly as much because there's less fog, there's less wind, there's less rain, less big storms. So we actually have less of a demand to put out calories now, which is kind of nice, right? I mean, we yeah. don't, we don't, we, and we can, or the other alternative is we could support more birds, right? That's yeah. the thing. We can support a lot more birds. The birds you're shooting are, uh, you know, they got thick fat, right? yeah. They're healthy. So when you do mm-hmm. get them,
2: they're nice. right? Do you see any um, evidence of like reverse migrations with the transmitters that you know of?
1: Uh, I mean, reverse migra- we what we do see a lot of is uh, molt migration. Yeah. And so, you know, the, like for instance, for the birds that we marked on, on nest in Sassoon Marsh, the hens, the gadwall, uh, hen mallards and hen gadwall, uh, they would, after, after nesting, many of them would migrate up to the Klamath Basin to go molt. And I don't, you know, if you guys are familiar with waterfowl have a, uh, you know, catastrophic molt. They, they molt all their flight feathers at one time. So they're flightless for about 45 days. And, uh, you know, and so uh, Jeff Cole, he's working at the California Department of Wildlife now. He, uh, he did his uh, master's work at Davis with John Eady and us looking at how, where these birds went to molt because they're susceptible. They can't fly, right? So they need a place where they, and, it's, and it occurs usually, you know, right after nesting, right? So July, August, September, uh, all the way into October, where they, they'll go and find a place that, that ha- needs to have food for them, needs to have some place to hide and protection and, you know, a stable source of water so they can get through that 45 days when they can't fly without getting eaten by something and, and not losing all their body condition because they're, you know. And what we saw in Klamath a few years ago was like, you know, so these birds are going to Klamath to molt, a lot of them. And what we had in Klamath was, you know, they didn't have the water, the water quality got bad and they had a big disease outbreak. Mm-hmm. We lost right. 70,000 birds up there, yep. right? And that's not just 70,000 bird well, you know, I don't, the numbers are kind of fuzzy, but there was a, over 50,000 birds water died, foul, out there, yeah. mm-hmm. died out there, waterfowl died up there. Many of those are the nest, are your nesting hens, right. the drive your breeding population yeah. of birds, right? So. So maintaining water quality and, and places for these birds to molt, super critical, right? For maintaining your breeding population. Yeah. And then, you know, this, the banding studies on that breeding population, Calvin shows that most of, you know, a big chunk of harvest is those local breeders, yeah. you know, mm. local nesting birds. So those are the kinds of things we're learning from these movement studies, right? It's like, hey, this molten habitat super important. Uh, we need more of it. You know, we need it distributed on the landscape and uh, we need to maintain it in a, in a good fashion.
3: Yeah, interesting stuff. A lot of, a lot of good data. Yeah,
1: no,
0: definitely. Well, we appreciate you coming out and sharing everything with us. You have anything you wanna you wanna leave us with before before we log out?
1: Oh, and I just really appreciate being here and, and getting to talk ducks and and geese and and uh, appreciate the work that uh, California Waterfowl does. Uh, you know, I've been I started out working. I did my master's work being supported by you know, you know CWA funded that work in the Sassoon Marsh back in the early nineties, uh, and CWA continues to support the work we're doing now, which is great. And, you know, working with Brian and you guys, uh, just always a pleasure and, you know, uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, you know, keep this stuff going and keep expanding and doing good things for waterfowl. Yeah. We appreciate it. And thank you so much for coming in. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks Mike. My pleasure.
3: Thank you for tuning in this episode at Save it for the Blind Podcast. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or anywhere podcasts are found.